Second reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. In this pre Bible it's on page 1288. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks be to God. Thank you, uh, David. Thanks for that. Well, uh, let's, let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And Father, we pray that you help us to understand this passage that's before us, that you'd also help us to be encouraged through your Spirit to know our great Saviour and what is done for us and for eternity that lies before us one day when Christ returns. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this morning... um, We continue the second part of this letter. For those who are visiting here with us uh, this morning, we have been studying the the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And this morning we're going to look at the second part of this letter, which is the text, verses 9 to 13. And so we have so far looked at uh, the the, the seven wonderful messages that Jesus writes to, to the church of every age, and so far we have looked at the following churches. The church at Ephesus was a great church, very active church, but it had lost its first love. And uh, it's so possible, isn't it, for a church to be so involved with so many things, and yet lose our first love for Christ. And how sad is that? The second church was the church in Smyrna. It was a suffering church. It endured much suffering. The third one was the church in Pergamum, the compromising church. Remember the situation with Jezebel and with the Nicolaitans and all the implications of that. And the church uh, was compromising the truth as well. And then we have the tolerant church uh, that was not so much uh, focused on, on maintaining the integrity of God's word. And they were tolerant to all kinds of teaching. And then in Sardis the dying church. And uh, Jesus says to the dying church, wake up! Get up from your sleep! It's time to be awoken, to be awakened to what I'm going to do 
uh, through you. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at, as I said, the second part of the sixth letter, which is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And I hope that you have your Bibles open uh, to uh, that passage of Scripture uh, this morning. A very quick recap from last week. We noted that there is no rebuke from Jesus to this church. He encouraged the church in Philadelphia by reminding them of who he is. His character is put on full display. That is, he is holy, he is true, and he is powerful. That means that we can trust him because he is true. That means we can trust him because he is reliable, unlike us. We can trust him because he is holy, the almighty Savior. The Word became flesh, God incarnate, holy and righteous Son of God. We can trust him because he is powerful. In the context here, in, in, in this letter, he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And to this church, Jesus says, I have given you an open door. I have given you opportunities for evangelism. Make use of those opportunities. In fact, God's word tells us uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So making use of the time that God gives us. Making use of the opportunities that God brings our way. Every day is a gift from Him. Correct? And time is a gift from Him. Each time we get up in the morning, I trust that you, when you get up and it's cold mornings, you put your feet on the carpet or whatever floor you have, you're able to get up and say, Lord, I thank you that you have sustained me through the night and you have given me another day to live. You have given me time and time keeps moving on. We all look at the clocks, don't we? Even right now, you're probably looking at your watch and thinking, when will Chris finish this talk? When will the service finish this morning? Because we're driven by time. Time is so precious. And so we noted last week, I hope you're not looking at your watches. And so we noted last week that we, we, we are to seek the open doors that God brings our way as a church, as individuals to make Jesus known, to share the best news, the good news of the gospel, and seek not for big doors, even for little doors. Often we look for the big things, don't we? But God opens little doors. Last night, some of us guys were invited to a young man in this congregation who cooked a meal for us. I must say it was a fantastic meal. I was absolutely blown away by the meal. This young man cooked it, he served it, he cleaned up everything. But I asked him, and we asked him, how did he get to know Christ? And it was through someone who was a librarian in another country who started sharing the gospel with this man over a period of one year and he came to faith in Jesus. Now who would expect to go to a library and meet the librarian who sought an open door to share the gospel? See what I'm saying? God can use big doors and little doors and we ought to make use of those opportunities. I think of the words of the late uh, 
Robin Williams in his Carpe Deum speech in Dead Poets Society. In fact, I was watching the clip this past week where he said to the students, Carpe Deum, Carpe Deum, seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary now. He's coming from another perspective. But you put a gospel perspective to this. It makes sense, doesn't it? Seize the day. Carpe diem. Make your lives extra- extraordinary. That is, we don't do it. We ask God to make our lives to live for Him. And so we put it in the frame of the gospel and we should say, Carpe diem. Seize the day for the Lord. And so this church at Philadelphia persevered in Christ and they sought to make use of the opportunity. And as we look at our text this morning, we see that Jesus assures this church, which had little strength, which had kept his word, that they did not deny his name, that they used the opportunities to open, uh, to, to evangelize. He reminds them of his presence with them. And so this morning, we're going to look at three points here in our, in our text. The persecution, the protection, and the pledge. Uh, and through it all, we see ultimately the amazing pledge that God gives to this church. Uh, the, the persecution. Have a look at your Bibles to verse 9, please. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Friends, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. Who is the synagogue of Satan? Who are they? Well, have a look at your passage. This is a reference, I believe, to the non-Christian Jews. The Jews who prided themselves to be God's chosen people and they had forfeited the right to do so. Why? Because they rejected Jesus as their Savior and Messiah. And in doing so, by rejecting the Messiah, they had no claim to claim the fact that they belong to God. They are a synagogue, not of God, but of Satan. That's harsh. You see why? They had become instruments in the hand of Satan, who used them to oppose and to persecute the church. These Jews, who were supposed to be the covenant people of God, God's chosen people, rejected Christ as the Messiah. And as these non-Christian Jews, with this little church there in Philadelphia, they were attacking and persecuting the Christians in this church, because they were naming Christ as their Messiah and Savior. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, they are not a synagogue of me, they are the synagogue of Satan. And so he says, behold, that's who they are. That's the persecution that you are facing. They are the ones who are doing this to you. Because they are a synagogue of Satan. But he says this. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you, your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Now, what are we to make of this, friends? I think it is helpful for us to reference Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14. Where we read this. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. 
And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Let me explain it very quickly. You see, the Jewish expectation was that the Gentiles would submit to them. That was their expectation. But Isaiah is saying something different here. The tables have now been changed. And um, John Stott, speaking of this, comments it this way. Instead of the Gentiles kneeling at the Jewish feet, Jews will bow down before Christians, not of course to worship them, but humbly to recognize the community of Jesus as the new and true Israel on whom God has set his love. What a transition, isn't it? That's taking place. And, the, and now the Jews are to be reminded here that this is a community of Jesus as the new and true Israel on whom God has set his love. And so Christians then are the true Jews and not the Jewish persecutors. And Jesus says to this church to go out. He has opened the door for them and in doing so, some of those who would receive the gospel would be the Jews. And they would then come and not worship and bow down to Christians as it were, but bow down to the Christ who has redeemed his people. So never give up on the Jews. <laughs> it's hard work. Never give up on any people group. Do we give up on any people group? Of course not. If, if God can convert Saul, remember Saul, who is called Paul, one of the most enthusiastic Jews, the most zealous guy. He's walking on the road to Damascus. He's getting ready to persecute Christians. And he meets the risen Jesus. And Jesus says to, to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus is in in heaven. But he's saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus identifies himself with the suffering church. And when the church is persecuted, Christ is indeed persecuted. And he stands with his people. Humanly speaking, we won't have much, won't have much of the New Testament without Paul, the apostle. Right? And what a theological treatise the book of Romans is. Wow! And God converted this man. And Saul is an example. The man who, who was so much against Jesus. And the people of the way. He comes and he bows down before Jesus. And not only that. He comes before the, 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 the elders. And now he becomes a preacher. From a persecutor to a preacher. How's that? That's God's grace. How? And then notice these words, friends. Notice these beautiful words. When I looked at this text, you know, it is such an encouragement. He um, says, I have loved you. What a tremendous reminder. They are liars, but I will also make them known that I have loved you. What a thing that is to be reminded this morning. How has Christ loved us. How has he loved us? Let me give you a text. 
1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This morning, what do we have here? Tell me. We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. What is reminded to us? The text that He has loved us. He has loved us and He has sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. I mean, that is a massive reminder. Each time I think about the love of God, and I've told you this, it is beyond my comprehension. I still cannot work it out, but I stand here by His grace, and I'm always amazed by His love. And look at what he says. What is propitiation? Very, very quick definition. Uh, Simon Kistemarker, one of the Bible scholars, defines propitiation as a wrath-removing sacrifice. As a wrath-removing sacrifice. That is, friends, it is this. We say, yes, Christ died for us. That is true. But there is more than that. (laughs) Christ died to take upon himself the wrath of God for sin. Primarily. Yes, he has died for his people, so forth. But primarily, his death is a propitiation. That is, when Christ died, the wrath of God was poured upon his son. We take the cup, don't we, this morning. The cup was the cup of wrath. The wrath for our sin laid upon Jesus. And by his propitiation there, the wrath for sin has been paid so that you and I today can stand before this holy and a righteous God because Christ has taken the wrath of our sin upon himself. That is love. That is love. What a blessing. Paul writes that in Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his love for us. Anyone can complete it? In that, while we were yet sinners, we memorized this text, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love. And so this morning, I want to encourage you this morning, you might feel so alone. You might feel so uh, perhaps unworthy. And we all do. But I want to encourage you to know, friends, this morning, for sure and for certain, God's amazing personal love for you when you feel in the dumps, when you feel you've been attacked by Satan, when you feel that your sins are coming over upon yourself and, you're, and, and things are going haywire in your life. And some weeks are like that. Some days are like that, aren't they? And we think, boy, I'm being bombarded from this side and that side and all over. And remind yourself, that's be reminded of the love of God. That's an amazing thing that Christ has done for you individually and collectively. And I think, and I suspect, friends, that we don't rejoice in that love the way we should. <laughs> and then we need to pray. Lord, as you have loved me, help me to love you. Do you pray that? Help me to love you, Lord. When was the last time we prayed that prayer? Lord, help me to love you first in my life. 
This is amazing love. What a blessing, what a joy, what a comfort to this church. The Lord of the universe, the King of kings, the holy, true and powerful one who holds the key to eternity in heaven tells this church in Philadelphia and in fact to all these people throughout every age because this letter is relevant to every age, his people, that he loves them and that he loves them for eternity. And to this church, though it has little strength, we are deeply loved. Never doubt his love for you. Alright? Never doubt his love for you. People will not love us the way Christ loves. That's for sure. People will let us down in their love for us. Parents will let us. Husbands and wives will not love the way Christ can love each other. Christ does. The protection. Notice here. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast. But you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see, this church has kept the word of his endurance. That's the Greek translation there. For all you Greek scholars here and students, it's a translation that could go like this. This kept the word of his endurance. That is a reference, I believe, to Jesus' endurance and suffering at the cross where he endured patient suffering. And so this would mean then that they held fast to the gospel just as Christ endured patiently at the cross. And Jesus says to them, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now what is this? This hour of trial. This word hour is, is not just 60 minutes, but rather a period of time and refers generically to all the trials that precede the return of Jesus. The trial is a testing time. This trial could refer to various trials, testings that God sends upon the world as recorded in the later chapters of this book. And notice that these trials come upon the whole world and to try or to test those who dwell on earth. Now, who is this whole world? Now, John, I think, believe, I believe, generally uses the expression, those who dwell on earth, to refer to unbelievers. Now, why do I say this? Revelation 6.10. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The trials and testings here is going to be intense for those who are unbelievers in this world. Their citizenship is on earth. Where is ours? Where? In heaven. Where do we see that, friends? Philippians, isn't it? Philippians chapter 3, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior who is coming from heaven. And their citizenship is here, and, and their trials will bring them down, certainly. Now, this does not mean that as Christians we are immune from the trials of this life and persecution. We go through the challenges of this life. The point is that when we go through them, even for us as believers, we need to be reminded, as we will see in a moment, that we are always in the Father's hands. We are protected as His children, knowing that nothing can separate us from His love. So, friends, as we trust in this Lord, as we see the trials brought upon this world, we are to be reminded of something else. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming. What is he referring to? Second coming. 
Do we think about his second coming? Do we? We know that Christ came, but he's going to come again. And when he comes again, we will not celebrate the Lord's Supper. No more. Why? Because we will be celebrating in heaven with the lambs, the feast that is set before us with Christ himself there. No more reminders because we will be with Jesus. Hold on. Hold fast. I'm coming soon. The Greek text there would give us the idea of keeping a firm grip on the things. Hold on so that no one will seize the crown. You see the crown is a garland or wreath given to a winner at the time uh, in, in, in games. The Olympics is coming up soon, isn't it? You getting ready for that or not? Maybe not so interested now. I see some people say no, so that's fine. We can't even get a tennis player to play for us there. Anyway, that's beside the point. A crown is a garland that's given to a winner, right? At a race or at an event. Jesus is saying you already possess the crown as winners. You already possess it. But hold on to it. It means to continue in their commitment and loyalty to Jesus to the very end. And notice then, friends, finally his promises. To the one who conquers and so forth, verses 12 and 13. We have some amazing promises here. All right. Prominent in these three verses are the words, My God. They are repeated four times. To him who overcomes. Notice the pledge Sorry, the pledge that Jesus gives and makes. I will make him a pillar. Make him or her a pillar. And three names will be engraved permanently to his people. I will make, first one, such a person a pillar. Such a person will be made a pillar in the temple of my God. You see, friends, the temple here is symbolical. We know from Revelation chapter 21, 22, that there will be no temple in heaven. And I saw look at that, Revelation 21, 22 I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb What then are we to make of this word pillar? Now I don't know whether about whether you've heard this expression, so and so is a pillar of the church. Have you? Have you? I'm sure you have, right? People have told me so and so is a pillar in the church By that they mean, such a person is a is an immovable person in the church if that person moves, the church is going to kind of collapse. No, it won't. But you know the sentiment behind it. It means that such a person is deeply rooted. And what Jesus is saying here, and we need to take the context of all the, the earthquakes and so forth. I won't go into that. I mentioned that last week. And a pillar is a solid, immovable thing that signifies strength. And Jesus says, I will make you a pillar in my temple, in my home, in eternity. You will be a pillar and nothing will move you. You are permanently established in my heavenly Jerusalem. What a blessing that is. So the idea is that in God's temple, there is heaven. To the one who conquers, will be made a pillar. And more than that, three names will be engraved permanently on the believer. Have a look at your text, please. Have a look at this passage. I will give, um, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven 
from my God and I will also write on him my new name. Three names. It's not the Trinity here. It's the name of the Father, the Son and we have the new Jerusalem. The first name is the name of God. I will write on him the name of my God. This is a clear indication that the believer belongs to God. Belongs to eternity. You see, we, we, let me explain it this way. When we die, we go to be with Christ. Correct? The moment we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord. That is an intermediate state. The church is waiting for the final state. That is when Jesus returns. And with him, he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And Revelation speaks about it. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out from heaven. And this name is signifying a permanency in God's eternal home. The new Jerusalem. What a blessing is that, friends, this morning. Permanently adopted as his child. The second name is the name of the new Jerusalem. Have a look at your text. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. The city of my God, that is, such a one has citizenship rights in the city of God. And we know this will happen when Christ returns. We long for the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, which is described in detail, like in Hebrews chapter 12. Mine, I will write my name on my people. What a blessing. If you want a description of the new Jerusalem, look at Revelation 21. It will tell us more about it. And then... We have also this wonderful pledge from Jesus. The third name is Christ's own new name. Uh, We are not told what this name is. Whatever this name may be, one thing is for certain. That salvation of his people is assured in Christ alone. And entering the new Jerusalem, they receive Christ's own new name. So, as we wind up this morning. As you come to the Lord's Supper. Are you coming with thankful hearts this morning? To know that Christ has engraved his name on you. Think about it. He's engraved his name permanently on you. The name of my God. I give you my new name. And I put the name of the new Jerusalem on you. Engraved. Nothing will take it away. When we got married, 28 and a half years ago, I got a ring. This ring is engraved on the inside, the date of our wedding. And this ring as C and R. Always a reminder, Chris and Rose, we are joined there, always reminds, I said to Rose, dear, whether you like it or not, you're stuck with me for life. <laughs> right? With all my singing and everything that you've got to cope with, you are stuck with me, right? The engrave on the inside is a reminder, it's a gift that my parents gave to, uh, uh, to me, and the reminder that this is an engraved name there. This is nothing. It's, it's something for this world, 
But it's not for eternity. The name of Christ engraved on our hearts and lives. Isn't that wonderful? So and so, sealed for eternity. My new name, my new Jerusalem, the name of my God, permanently put on the child of God for eternity. What a blessing. So this morning, come, come to the Lord's Supper. Celebrate, think of everything that God has done for you and will do for you. And if you are a believer this morning, you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins. John's going to come and lead us in our Lord's Supper this morning. You believe in Christ as your Savior. Then this table is for you. Rejoice. May God bless you and encourage you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the blessings that you have showered upon your church. O we of little strength, but we trust in you. Thank you for your pledge to us, your people. Thank you for your protection given to us. Thank you that even when we go through persecution, you remind us that you love us. In the name of Jesus. Amen.